We're in John chapter 14 this morning, and I want to read one of those verses. It's not going to be maybe one of the ones you think. And as was said earlier, this is such a familiar passage. I'm sure many of the verses we could quote by heart, and it's very common to preach from the first part of it, but that's not really what I'm after here this morning. So what I want to do is read verse number five, then we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll look and see what's going on here that pertains to the series that we're uh, involved with on Sunday mornings. They asked him this. So it says in the verse, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And so we'll stop reading there. We'll have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for everything you've done for us in this past week. And Father, we realize that in our better moments, we have to take every day, whether it's cloudy or sunny, uh, whether it's pleasing to us with the temperatures or not, and realize that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God, uh, the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And thank you for the precious gift of life that you give us. Help us to teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Help us to count every day a privilege from you, and to look for those things that we can rejoice in and be glad. And one of those things, that this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it that you've made this particular day Sunday, the Lord's Day, for us to gather and giving us the privilege, Lord, of worshiping you and being together in a way that we know merits your special blessing because it's your special command. And so we're here today in obedience to you. The things that we've done so far, we've done in obedience to you. And we desire now to preach the word so that, again, we may obey you and honor you and have open hearts to it and open lips of liberty to preach the word of God today so that we'll be a help and blessing and encouragement Lord, we thank you that, as we've already heard another reminder in the Sunday school hour, that you're acquainted with all of our ways. And we take great comfort in that, Lord. Certainly, uh, the preacher takes comfort knowing that even in the preparation of the sermon, whether the thoughts occur to me or not, you know exactly where everyone is here this morning, exactly what everyone needs. And you're able to, to go far beyond anything that we could ask or think or know and so that's what we pray this morning. We pray that it'll be the ministry of the Holy Spirit that prevails and that our hearts will be open and everyone will go away with a blessing. And Lord, always we pray for those that are helping in other parts of the building or we want to think too, if we ever have one here who doesn't know Jesus as Savior, always, Lord, we want to be cognizant of making the gospel clear and plain to people and always uh, having a winsome place for people to find the knowledge of the Lord and the way of eternal life. And so we pray you'll bless now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, we are fast. We are on the fast track now to completing this 30-plus uh, sermon series on the questions that people asked Jesus. They asked him this. And we've seen that a lot of those questions come from the disciples. A lot of them come from Jesus' detractors, his opponents. And then, of course, you have a whole segment of them that come from people in all walks of life. And this morning, we certainly have one that comes from one of the disciples. He's named, verse number five, it's Thomas, who's the speaker. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Thomas is a lot like Peter. I think he gets a lot of bad rep, and I'm not sure it's all deserved. Um, I have a, a sermon that I preach on Thomas, have preached on Thomas before, and of course, it's my namesake. So I just think, though, that when we, we look at Thomas, when we look at Peter, and we look at some of their faux pas, we just have a very clear image of ourselves, if not worse, And when we think of the mistakes that we also make in the Christian life. And I'll say it probably a couple times in the message this morning, I don't think we should be hard on Thomas for this question. I'm glad he asked it. I think 
many times the questions, the sincere questions that people have are a lot like what your congressman will tell you about when he receives a letter. You know, anymore, I was reflecting on letters, anymore to go down to the mailbox and find a personal written letter is, is just about a rarity anymore. You don't very, get very much of that thing. Well, I'll tell you, I can remember the days when if you got a, a nice, sharp business letter, I mean, something that was on letterhead, something that had good uh, print, type, all that kind of stuff, boy, that was, that was great. You really felt important. Now it seems like that's all you get, and if you get a handwritten letter anymore, you're rejoicing because those are a rarity. And of course, your congressman will tell you if someone cares enough to write, many people email, but many people don't even do that. But if, you're, if your congressman knows that if someone cares enough to write, they actually have statistics on this because they know that for every letter like that that they get, it represents some number, whatever it is, of other people who feel the same way but just didn't take the trouble to... Uh, write the letter. And they, they, this is a big science, how they, they study this and try to determine what the public sentiment is. So I'm thinking that as Thomas asked this question of the Lord, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? I'm thinking that that was on the hearts and minds of the other disciples as well. I'm thinking that as Thomas listened to the Lord, there was some honest confusion there. And, of course, the Lord responds to that with what we might call comforting assurance. Those are the two thoughts that we're going to be looking at in the message today. But it gives us a great opportunity, becoming a little bit more specific about this area of confusion. Do you know there is tremendous confusion that exists in the world today, religiously speaking, and particularly about the way to heaven, which is, in so many words, what is going on here Jesus is talking about returning to the Father. That's not abundantly plain to the disciples, but that is what's going on. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And it leads to Jesus giving the six of the seven I am sayings in the Gospel of John, probably one of the best known of these. Probably uh, many of you could quote that verse this morning, verse number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now just stop and pause and think about what I've said so far because think how much honest confusion there is about that in the world today. There's a lot. You just try it sometime. Do a religious survey. Go and knock on doors. Go stop people on the street. I'm not thinking any of you are going to actually do that. But I mean, there are people who do this kind of thing. And you'll get a lot, a lot of answers. And yet the Bible gives us a way to know the answer to that question, and to have faith in the answer that it gives. And that's such a blessing here today. And I'm, I'm hoping to magnify that a little bit in our midst today. So at first, though, let's talk a little bit about the honest confusion. As I say, I don't think we should be too hard on Thomas, because I want to do a little review for you and show you just exactly how practical and I think how reflective of what the other disciples might have been thinking what Thomas put to words really was. A little review, I say, of the kinds of things that Jesus had been talking about. And if you try to listen to these and then put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, think about how you might be feeling and think about how that might leave you. We're going to look at four or five things, but we're going to look at verses just all here in John, so you don't have far to go. But first of all, do you know that Jesus talked about going away? And sometimes that can be very troubling. So look at John chapter 7, and we're going to look at some that are further away, that is, that are back a little bit further in time, and some that are right up close, and some that Jesus says to, is speaking to the Jews 
not so much directly to his disciples, but you have to realize that his disciples were there and overheard these things, and I'm sure as they heard the master speak, they had questions. So the first of these is John 7 and verse 34. Have a look at that. Verse 33 says, Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while I am with you, and then I will go unto him that sent me. Well, it would seem clear to us what that's talking about, but then in verse 34, he says, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. So Jesus was often talking about going away. Chapter 8, verse 21, he's again speaking to the Jews, and it says here, Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins, whither I go ye cannot come. And if you're familiar with that context there, that, that caused some consternation. They thought he was talking about killing himself. So the disciples, of course, were listening in on all of this as well. Over to chapter 12, verse 8. So we're getting back closer to our actual text. But look at 12, 8. And this, of course, is um, an inference that's very clear from what Jesus says. He is talking to his disciples here when he says, For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Well, at the first, maybe it just sounds like a generalization, something like someone would, people say from time to time. But you have to remember, Jesus is not an old man when he says this. It's one thing for someone who's older and far down the road in life to say, well, you know, I'm not going to always be around. It's another thing for someone who's in his early 30s to say something like that. And the disciples, I'm sure, found these things troubling when they didn't understand them and didn't necessarily know all the answers to them. The same chapter, note verse 35 kind of begins to pile up, doesn't it? To, to see just how much Jesus said about this. Verse 35, Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you, for he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. And again, Jesus seems to put some kind of a constraint on how long he's going to be with them. And then, pretty close at hand to where we were in 14, look at chapter 13, verse 33. This actually falls within the same discourse, this upper room discourse. Jesus says, little children, chapter 13, verse 33, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say unto you. Well, there are five or so references where Jesus is talking about either going away or placing some distinct limitation on just how long he's going to be with them. That's in the background. Jesus also talked about being lifted up. And in chapter chapter 12, look at verse 22. Let's see. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, verse 32. Look at chapter 12, verse 32. Um, the Lord says this, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Might sound a little unclear what the Lord is talking about. But he makes it clear in the next verse, and I think they kind of figured it out as well. This, he said, signifying uh, what death he should die. The people seemed to catch on to something about what he was saying, because in verse 34, the people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Well, they found that confusing. Um, because of their ideas about the Christ and him being eternal. So why is Jesus saying the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? Now, to the disciples, Jesus also spoke about being betrayed. This is the third thing that I'm wanting you to think about as we take this little summary trip here. Chapter 13, verse 18, look at this. 
I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And down a little bit later, verse 21, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Let's look at uh, another thing, the fourth thing. Jesus spoke of being denied to Peter, verse 37. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. And of course, if you go back and look at Matthew's account of this, John doesn't give us this, but Jesus told the disciples they would all be offended that night because of him. These things are all weighing on their minds. This really begins to add up. Um, one last thing, Jesus did speak, and this, this should have been more explicit for them, but in chapter 14, verse 2, he spoke of returning to the Father. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then he says this, I go to prepare a place for you. But what I'm asking you is this, put all this together. Put the weight of the five things that we've just talked about. Jesus speaking about going away, of being lifted up in death, of his betrayal, of their denial, of returning to the Father. Put the aggregate weight of all of that together on the disciples to whom he meant everything and with whom they had companied now and given their lives for uh, some three years. How would they be feeling about this? And I think it's not too much to say that they would be fe feeling bewildered they would be feeling confused and perhaps even discouraged. And when I say that I think Thomas just gave voice to what many of the rest of them were thinking, I think we actually have confirmation of that. If you look back in 1336, Peter asked the same question. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. And so broadly speaking, though, moving away from the disciples and thinking about the greater issue in the context, what I said earlier, there's a lot of confusion in the world. And sometimes it leads to discouragement. You know, when you, you try and try and try to get something figured out, you don't seem to be able to get it figured out, especially so important at something so important as this. And a lot of times people just what? Throw up their hands. Have you met people like that? I've met people like that. You, you, you talk to them about something in the religious realm, and they're just, they just, I don't know, it becomes kind of an excuse, but they just say, oh, how can you really know? You know, the Methodists think this, the Catholics think this. You've heard people go through this before. And so how do we, how, how can anybody really know? And they just, it becomes kind of an excuse not to, to try to really get to the bottom of it. By the way, I can't resist telling you one of my favorite stories about confusion. Ronald Reagan used to tell this story, and I've always enjoyed this, but it was about a fellow who decided that he had, he had a buddy, and, and he decided that because the buddy was uh, successful in his business and he was uh, going to open a new branch office, that he would congratulate him by sending him a bouquet of flowers. So you can imagine at first how pleased the man was when he got to work that morning at the new branch office, and he discovered there are a bouquet of flowers, and he, he didn't know who it might be from or anything about it, and so he walked up, he looked at it, he admired the flowers, and he looked at the uh, card that had the inscription on it, and it said, rest in peace. <laughs> well, the, man, the more the man thought about that, the more he was irritated with the thing. 
this kind of grew a little bit over the day until finally he decided on his way home he was going to stop by the florist and just let him know what he had to think about that. So he went in and he started talking about what in the world and finally the florist said to him, buddy, calm down. He said, don't be so upset. He said, don't you realize that somewhere in this town today somebody was buried under a bouquet of flowers that said, good luck in your new location? (laughs) There is a lot of confusion, but let's bring it back to a more serious note. I'll quote you another president. How about this? This is more to the point that I was making a moment ago. Harry Truman once said this, but this does sound a bit like a politician, doesn't it? If you can't convince them, confuse them. But, you know, there's more to that. It kind of brings us back, all joking aside, to the point that I was trying to make a moment ago. I I really sort of think that that's kind of one of the tacks the devil takes. If you can't convince them, confuse them. Because once people get confused and they throw up their hands, they just sort of give up. And I think this is kind of where the disciples were. So I, for one, am really glad that Thomas asked the question because it gives way to the answer that Jesus gives. And this is one of the most astonishing things. This is one of the most profound things. You know, I chuckle sometimes because we talk about the Gospel of John being simple. And, you know, when you have a a new convert, um, and, and I've done this many times, I agree with it. But you know, you think about, well, where, where should I recommend that they read first in the Bible? And so I would always tell people, read the Gospel of John first. Very simple, very easy to understand. And then I would always say to them, next, read the book of Romans, because you'll want to get some grasp of what what all the, the doctrines are that, that we believe as Christians. And But we, we say that about the Gospel of John, and the more you study it, the more I, I think it's the most profound of the Gospels. I think it's amazing. I think it just shows the genius of God's Word that on the one hand, you can take something and use single, double, triple-syllable words, simple, small words. You can do, use words like that like John does. You can, you can write something that's on the level that children can understand it. Of course... Jesus is often the speaker. You can do that on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, you can write something that's so profound that you can keep people thinking for years and meditating for years and still not necessarily grasp all the meaning or exhaust the depth of what's really there. I think that's what you've got in this answer that Jesus gives. It's simple. It's plain. It's easy to understand. It's comforting because you can build your faith on it. You can depend on it. He says, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said, you don't have to look any further than the person who's talking to you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Hey, listen, you know what? That is simple enough for anyone to understand. But at the same point, have you ever really tried to ponder that, meditate about that, try to sort of break it down a little bit? Do you ever ask yourself the question, why didn't Jesus just say, I'm the way? And stop. He could have said, I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But he didn't say that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So I want to try to give you three thoughts this morning, but with the sincere confession that I don't think this will exhaust it all, but I'm hoping it will help us to grasp a little bit more. I, 
I love to keep studying these things, really, because it seems like the more you do, the more you get something else out of it. First of all, of three observations to make about Jesus' answer to this. Jesus says he is the way. Jesus is the way. But he gives two reasons for it. He gives the reasons that he is the way because he is also the truth and he is also the life. Now, those statements are equal and yet they're not. What I mean by that is this. The primary question that's being asked is about the way, right? Isn't this what Thomas said? Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And Jesus said, the way ye know. Thomas contradicted that and said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So the primary answer concerns the word the way. But the point of the thing is, is Jesus is the way because he is the truth and because he is the life. They're equal thoughts, and yet the second thought and the third thought are a way of explaining the primary answer, which is that Jesus is the way. So he says he is the way, but gives two reasons. Let's think about these for a moment. He is the way because he is the truth. What truth? The truth that leads to God. He is the truth without which we cannot find God. That's why he is the way, because he is the truth. The truth with, without which you cannot find God. Let's go back and see some of the other things that Jesus says about this. Let's go back to chapter 1. Because we think about the written word of God, which we are so blessed to have today. But let me back up and get us to that point. Jesus started talking about himself. In the opening of the Gospel of John, it says, In the beginning was the word. Now, do you ever stop and think about that? Why is the word a name for Jesus? What do you use when you're trying to communicate with people? We can use a lot of things, but the primary thing that we rely on is words, right? I mean, you can look at people. We've all had the look. Some people use body English when you're trying to deftly and quietly communicate with someone. But the primary vehicle that we use to communicate is speech. Isn't that true? So what does this tell us? This tells us that God's primary communication of himself is through the word, which is the Bible, but is also a person. The person is paramount. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And look at what it says as we continue on down. Verse number 14 says, And the word became flesh. So, If Jesus is eternally God and eternally with God, then that God is a spirit, so you can't see a spirit. In the Old Testament, we have what you might call pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ on various occasions, but in the main, you can't see God. And this is exactly what this is building to, so what happens? God, desiring to communicate the truth about himself in the ultimate way, It says the word became flesh. He became incarnate and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To what end? Look at verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. So you don't see God. You hear about God, but you don't see God. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, what does it say? He hath declared him. 
Very interesting word that's translated here, declared. Because sometimes you'll hear preachers refer to this. We refer to the study of the Word of God to try to understand what's really there. Have you heard this term before? We refer to that as exegesis. That's this word in the original language. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath exegeted him. There is no clearer, fuller opportunity to understand God than in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, now the living word is not present with us except by his spirit, but we have the written word. The author of the Hebrews talks about this. The, the author of the Hebrews talks about the fact that God, who in sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us how? In his son. Do you see, the, the coming of Jesus into the world is the apex of God's revelation to us. Him being gone now, we have the completed scriptures. And aren't you glad that we do? But you, you begin to get this idea about the truth about God. How in the world can you find your way to God without the truth about God? So he is the truth without which we cannot find God. That's the first explanation for it. And the second is because he is the life that comes from God. He is the life without which we cannot know God. Because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in us because of the blindness of our heart. Paul tells us this. We have no spiritual life. So we cannot know God except through the life that's inherent within the Lord Jesus Christ in which he offers to us. Here, let's look at some verses on this. Go back to your John chapter 1 for a moment. It's amazing the statements that, that are made in this conjunction. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go over to chapter 5 and verse 26, have a look there. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Of course, how could we not look at 11? Chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, when Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though we are dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said. Or we could go over to 1 John, and I, I want to pick this verse to read to you because some of you might be aware of the fact that John makes three statements about God in this little epistle, 1 John. The first one concerns the fact that God is life. The second one concerns the fact that God is light. The third one concerns the fact that God is love. And these are the tests of life, which is what 1 John is written about. In conjunction with the fact that God is life, you have the clearest statement of this. You have it in the beginning, you have it at the end, but read or listen to this in 1 John chapter 5. And verse number 20, And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true. This is the true God, even his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and what? Eternal life. All right, all of that might... 
not be the easiest to grasp at first, so come back to the simple statements that I've made. You take all these verses, you take what they're saying, you take it and plug it into what Jesus said about being the way. But without the truth, we cannot find God, and without the life, we cannot know God. And this is all in Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. Maybe this is a feeble illustration, but I think it helps. At least it does me a little bit. If you think about a river, it starts somewhere, doesn't it? And a lot of times what we do is we refer to that as the headwaters. I want you to think a little bit about the Mississippi River. So I don't know how many people have driven up to the Mississippi River before, but if you do that at a place, let's say, well, like just past Memphis, I mean, you're going to be sitting there looking at a huge, huge river. I mean, it's in some ways mind-boggling. Did you ever think about where does all of that start? Where does, that, where does the mighty Mississippi start? And do you know that the headwaters of the Mississippi were discovered in 1832 by the man by the name of Henry Schoolcraft? It's really interesting that 12 years before that, in 1820, he had been, this man, Schoolcraft, he had been a part of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And now he was sort of doing some work on his own, and he traced the headwaters of the Mississippi all the way back to a small glacial lake in north-central Minnesota called Lake Itasca. You probably never heard of it. You probably don't have any reason to have heard of it. But it makes an interesting point. Well, the lake in itself is not that big. It's only ranging from 20 to 30 feet deep and about 1.8 square miles. But it gives birth to the mighty Mississippi, which runs some 2,340 miles from its headwaters to the Gulf of Mexico. And as it does, what does it do? It nourishes and blesses the land through which it runs. And in the same way, from Jesus flows the mighty tide of light and life that brings salvation to millions. That's what he's trying to say. He is the life because he is the truth. Without the truth, you cannot find God. Without the life, you cannot know God. He is that. That's why he is the way. Second observation we can make. Jesus is the only way. Not very politically correct statement, is it? Because we're supposed to live today in a day of acceptance and pluralism and all those great things, so-called. Till you really stop to think about it, and so whether you're talking about religious truth or just truth in general, truth is narrow. If it's cold, it's not hot. Cold might be relative, but we can pick a temperature at which we all agree it's cold. How about 20 below zero? I don't think there's anybody in here that will disagree. 20 below zero is cold. An Eskimo will tell you that's cold. He might say there's ones colder, but that's cold. That's not hot. Truth is narrow. And absolute truth is even narrower. So when Jesus makes the statement, it may not be politically correct, but... It's the way truth is. Something's either truth or something's not truth. And Jesus made this statement. You notice the definite article with each of them. He says, I am the way. 
Notice it says the way, the truth, the life. He doesn't say a way, a truth, a life, which is the day in which we're living, right? That's, that's sort of the day in which we live. That that's the way people think. Well, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth. I'm going to talk more about that next week. You have your truth and I have my truth. And you have your rendition of life, eternal life, and religion and all those things. And your rendition of the way and I have mine. But that's not what Jesus said. He said there's one way. Because there's one truth. Because there's one life. And I am that. I am that person. And in me it's all wrapped up. I like the way, and by the way, this is the, this is was consistently the preaching of the early church. So if you don't, and the Bible, so if you, if you don't like the statement that Jesus makes here, well, what do you think about Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 when Peter was preaching? And he said, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name given under heaven amongst men whereby we must be saved. That's what they preached. So I guess they were politically incorrect. Later, when the Apostle Paul came along, he said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator. He didn't say there's, any, there's several gods and several mediators. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. Who's that? The man Christ Jesus. It's either true or it's not true. And this is what Jesus is saying. I love the way one commentator sums this up. I think this is a grand statement. He says this, all truth is God's truth, as all life is God's life. But God's truth and God's life are incarnate in Jesus. And if you think about that for a few moments, that does a grand job of summarizing this. Here's the last observation. When we think about the practical outworking of all that we've been talking about, assurance comes to us when we believe that. In the midst of confusion, can you have assurance? Can you find your way? Can you have confidence? And the answer to that is yes, when we believe. So whether on the one hand, we represent troubled disciples like Peter and Thomas that were bewildered, that were confused, that were uncertain. And many times we go through seasons of doubt like that in our own lives, which again is, well, I don't think we should be too hard on Thomas, although they call him Doubting Thomas. I don't think we should be too hard on him when we stop to consider how many times we go through these seasons of bewilderment, confusion, discouragement, and doubt. But you know, peace comes and assurance comes when we believe. Let's see if that's what Jesus is saying in the context. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. See what he told them. Let not your heart be troubled, which it so often is, which theirs were. I mean, he hit the button. He, right, he hit the nail right on the head. This is how they were feeling, troubled, at these statements of his about going away and all of that type of thing. And he, he read their hearts. He saw their hearts. He said, look, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe in me also. Down further in the context, he repeats it. Look at verse 11. Believest, verse 10, Believest thou that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. But he kept appealing to them, Put your trust in me. Put your trust in me. And I, beloved, I'll tell you, I... I don't find that I, I grow weary of needing that exhortation. I think I need it about every day. 
Put your trust in me. Put your trust in me. And stop letting your heart be troubled. But for uncertain sinners that are plagued by confusion and doubt, can you really know? Yes, you can. It's not pie in the sky. John tells us this in a little epistle that he wrote, these things write I unto you. He said that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you might believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, that assurance comes about eternal life as well when we believe. And I've told you this before, but it's well worth repeating because it, it's so um, practical an illustration. But remember I told you about the man that came up to Moody and had been struggling. He just could not get assurance. And he was constantly plagued by doubt about this thing of eternal life. And finally, Moody said, well, let me ask you a question. Is, was Noah safe in the ark? And the man looked at him and said, well, of course Noah was safe in the ark. And he, Moody asked him, he said, well, what made him safe? His feeling or the ark? <laughs> and it's like a light bulb came on in the guy's head. All this, he said, I've been so foolish all these years. Obviously, the ark. What makes us safe? Christ or our feelings? Christ makes us safe. And it's when we put our trust in him and we rest in him fully. You know, if you're resting in anything else for salvation, you're just never going to have that assurance and you're never going to have that peace, which is why I keep reaching out to people and always have. If you believe that somehow you're going to work your way to heaven, you will never, even if you're a true believer, but you have some tinge of this idea, well, I get saved by grace through faith, but then I kind of have to keep myself. You're never going to have assurance. The Bible says we're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And the beauty of it, folks, though, is though it does not excuse us from doing everything we can to live the way we know is right. In the final analysis, the saving depends on him and the keeping depends on him. Or you and I would be in bad and sad shape. And this is the theme of the Gospel of John for people who, who wonder, who, people who have questions about eternal life. Chapter 3, verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him, believeth, should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Chapter 20, verse 31, of course, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And the passage I quoted you a moment ago from 1 John chapter 5. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. In his Son. Not in the church, not in a preacher, in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It's as simple as that test right there. And then he summarizes it in that verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know. K-N-O-W, know. So where do people get off saying you can't know? They just don't know what the Bible says. You can know. But it shouldn't make us proud that you can know. It should make us humble because it all depends on Jesus Christ and on simple and complete faith in him, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you might believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's so important for us. 
And if you're here today and you have questions about this, this will clear it up. Not because I'm smart. It's what the Bible says. If you are relying on anything other than Jesus Christ for your soul's salvation, you'll never have true Bible salvation. You'll certainly never have true Bible assurance. Ask yourself this question today. On what am I basing my eternal destiny? Church membership? Good luck. Sad to think, but churches come and churches go. Unfortunately, more seem to be going than coming these days. Good works? How will you ever know when you've done enough? Good works outweigh the bad works? How will you know that every day you live, you don't tilt the pendulum down in favor of the bad? You'll never know. Better just to have done with that completely and recognize it has nothing to do with our works but everything to do with his work on the cross of Calvary and that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's liberating, soul-liberating truth when you come to see that and you come to trust in him as your personal savior from sin. Famous for having written the book years and years ago, The Imitation of Christ. Perhaps no one summarizes what's here in John 14, 6 better than the, the 15th century churchman by the name of Thomas Akempis. I want you to listen to what he says about John 14, 6. He says, follow thou me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. And so it is. I feel somewhat comfortable with using this illustration this morning because lots of you here, I think, will identify with this. I'm old enough to identify with it, but it would have been more my father's thing. But do any of you happen to remember... What was Frank Sinatra's signature song? I knew I'd get a few smiles. I'm just looking around to see who might smile. (laughs) Do you know, it's really interesting, that song was a song entitled My Way. That song became so popular that, just speaking about the UK, England, it it spent 75 weeks at the top of the UK Top 40 Sinatra would sing it all the time. In fact, he was so well known for that song that in one of the, at least one of the concerts that the three tenors did, you know the three tenors that did the con, Pavarotti, uh, Placido Domingo, and Jose Carrera, the three tenors. If you've ever seen those, those at least in one of them, they, Sinatra was in the audience, and they sang this song. Of course, I always like Pavarotti the best. He's my favorite of them all. And, uh, and they sang, of course, in English. But Sinatra was in the audience, and at one point, Sinatra got to his feet, blew a kiss to them, and it was just... But the interesting thing about the song is, is that Sinatra said, Sinatra's daughter said this, and this is something I think maybe a lot of people don't know about the song. It became his signature song, and yet, in later in life, she said, this is his daughter talking, she said, he came to dislike the song... And if this is true, he certainly came to dislike it for the right reasons because 
He regarded it as self-serving and self-indulgent. And the song certainly does come across with a fair degree of hubris. Listen to the lyrics. There's a point I'm trying to make about my way. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, and, much, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets I've had a few, but then again too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and much more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall and did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed and cried. I've had my fill, my share of losing. And now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the word, words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. Now, if you hear him sing the song, there's a certain amount of emotion in it. But the philosophy in it stinks. For the simple reason, if we're honest with ourselves and look back over life, the things that we insisted on doing them my way, most of those don't seem to work out too well. And if you persist in going through life, living it your way, particularly in reference to the fact that Jesus said, I am the way, then you will find yourself ultimately a shipwreck on the rocky shores of a Christless eternity. Because it's not my way, Jesus is the way.